I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back, everybody, to Artist Digest, the live podcast practice where we move beyond our tribe and our little echo chamber long enough to understand those who we might consider to be our enemy. Uh, these are generally people that uh, we might call stupid or silly or dumb. You know, we might we might label them that. Uh, but no, we're going to, rather than label them something, we're going to see if we can understand different ideas. My name's Conrad, and this podcast is recorded live. And you'll find it, obviously, on the Ideas Digest Instagram account. You can join us live, ask questions, interact with us there. And it's a practice. What the, what the bloody hell is a practice, Conrad? Well, a practice, I mean practical, right? Listening to people you disagree with. And, you know, it's a full contact sport. You know, obviously not for the physical body, but for the brain and I think for the ego. Um, yeah, definitely. It definitely takes its toll. So here's how you can train up your mind to take those little punches that are often thrown at you by a different idea. If you disagree with it, it takes its toll. So three things you can do. Number one, listen to the episode that most triggers you. As you scroll the feed of Ideas Digest, you go, oh, that one looks like it'll trigger me. Listen to it. Click that one. Number two, as you're listening, ask a question. So jump on Instagram, comment. What did I miss? There's only one of me here. I don't ask all the questions that I probably should. Help me out. Ask, ask, what do you wish I asked? And number three, shoot me when you finished a DM, an Insta DM, and share your thoughts on the episode. What, what, did, it, what did it show you? What did it miss? What do you like about it? What didn't you like about it? Um, other than that, that's it. That's how you engage in the live podcast practice called Ideas Digest. To the clickbait now, straight into it. Now, remember, if you're just joining us new, welcome. Uh, we always start with the clickbait, but rather than listen to the clickbait and walking away, you know, like Uncle Daryl on Facebook who might read a headline, reshare it, and that's it. That's his, that's his news reading done for the day. No, no, no. Clickbait is just the beginning of the conversation. It's not the end. So I'm going to start with the clickbait. Here you go. Here we go. It might mislead you. It might not. I don't know. Clickbait is helping you turn your back on Jesus. Who is helping you turn your back on Jesus? New friend of the show, Phil Drastow. Welcome, Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, it's good to have me, I guess. Good to be had. Good to be on your show. Um, I'm excited. I'm very honored as well. Thank you. It, it's great to have you here. Now, helping helping people turn their back on Jesus. It might be out of context. I don't know. We'll have to find out because <laughs> that clickbait um, will have to uh, intrigue. I think it's intrigued some people. Um mm-hmm. And, but I'm going to, I'm going to start, I want to get some just like baseline information from you, Phil. We've literally just met. I've DM'd you a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't know much. So I'm going to, you know, when we meet someone new, we just get the surface level information from them. So it's like, oh, hi. Oh, there's this guy named Phil. Oh, Phil. Hi. How are you? Uh, Tell me about yourself, Phil. Like, what do you do for work? You know, what have you been up to? Sure. Well, I do this for work. I'm really lucky. I get to do what I, what everyone else seems to be doing as a hobby online. Um, I, this is my job. I help people that are going through uh, radical shifts of faith, um, going through evolving, growing, developing, or spiraling out of control. Whatever that looks like, that's what I do day in, day out. 
Um, and so I used to be um, a traveling speaker in the kind of Christian world, evangelical, charismatic, that kind of mix. Although I spoke everywhere, I've spoken all kinds of backgrounds. You wouldn't believe the kind of backgrounds I've been in. Um, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, really conservative, Church of Christ, right through to kind of charismatic swinging from the rafters. Um, and I used to travel and do conferences and church meetings and all that different stuff. And over the years of doing that, found that a lot of people would come to me at the end when no one's looking, come up for prayer and go, Phil, I don't believe any of this. Well, help, you know, <laughs> not not always exactly those words, but going, uh, this doesn't make sense. I'm not sure what to do. I can't talk to anyone. Who can I talk to? I can't talk to my pastor because this is like social suicide for me to come out and say, I'm struggling with my faith. I'm struggling with what I believe here. Um, and so... That's what I do. I decided, you know what? There's a million people going into churches and giving another conference. And everyone that's happy in a church has a pastor. There's infinite pastors for people that are content and comfortable in a church. Like you couldn't swing a cat in a church without hitting someone that's willing to disciple you and bring you up on boards and help you with your bait, whatever. But you start tiptoeing out of conventional Christianity and go, I'm not, I'm questioning a few beliefs. I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about that. And very quickly, you'll find there's very few people to come alongside you and, and support you. Um, and I thought, you know what? That's a really rapidly expanding movement. Did, did you know that it, every day, 2,700 people in America leave the church? Not leave church to try another one, but are done with church permanently. 2,700 every day. Um, it's the fastest growing spiritual movement in the West is people leaving churches. Um, what's interesting and reason I call it a spiritual movement is 78% of those 2,700 people still profess to believe in some form of divinity, spirituality, still trying to follow Jesus, whatever that might look like. So they're still very deeply spiritual. They still want to, what's fascinating to me is they've got a label of being kind of backsliders of people that didn't care or didn't take it seriously enough. That's not actually true. Um, these Mm -hmm. people actually were led out of church or maybe even out of Christianity um, at least as they know it, by God. It was by their pursuit of God that brought them out. You've got a pretty unconventional, well, kind of like a conventional but unconventional job. I am detecting an accent. I'm mm-hmm. going to go with uh, somewhere in, I'm going to go England. I am in England, but uh, no. <laughs> it probably is. It's a good English accent in the mix probably as well. What what I, what accent is it? Where are you from? So I'm I'm from Scotland originally, but I've lived throughout England, Scotland, Ireland, America. Oh. I've 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 lived around. So, um, bit of a blend, bit of a blend. Hard one's place. I've come up with some false assumptions here. So, <laughs> there's no better way to offend a Scottish person than call them English. <laughs> That's right. So I'm glad I got that out of the way early. Don't worry. You'll you'll be you'll be going. Oh, it's nice to talk to Kiwis, and I'll be like, bloody hell, New Zealander. <laughs> so you'll get your revenge. But I was I was trying to formulate some assumptions based on like some of that information. And how we like to begin the show is is a game that I'm I'm fastly calling, uh, conf- like judge and confess. So I'm gonna judge. I'm gonna judge you, and the listeners of our show have judged you very like oh, wow. surface level. Maybe based on some of the information that they've given you. Maybe uh, some of the information that you've shared. Maybe from looking through your Instagram. But then mm. we're gonna confess. So so now is the time. We're not gonna run away and tell our friends all our judgments about you. We're gonna tell you, Phil, to your face, and you get awesome. to you get to say yes or no. You know you, d- okay. you don't get any nuance. Right. Nice black and white dualistic answer. Awesome. That's right. 
That's right. That's exactly where we start. But, you know, we won't end there. So fear not. Fear not. Um, I have to throw some of my assumptions out the window. Um, maybe I'll keep this one. Uh, it's, this is my Australian elitism coming across a little bit. Um, you feel you're kind of from a cold part of the world. Not many like open bodies of water. You can't be a great swimmer if you're from Scotland. True. Yep. True. Okay, good. Got that one. Yeah. Australians, we like to pride ourselves on our swimming ability. <laughs> I got to throw out the, the throw out the other one because I was like, I saw UK and I was like, oh, he's in the UK. He's got to love cricket. But Scott, like Scotland, you, you don't love cricket then, eh? Uh, I do love cricket. I've not watched cricket in years, though. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, you, 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 I think the UK, uh, well, England lost the Ashes. So, yeah, not a great time to be watching. But you probably don't go for them anyway. You, no. Anyone but England. That's how Scotland support anything. So you're on my side. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Scottish then, um, you must be... Now I'm just thinking of as many stereotypes as I can. You must uh, uh-huh. wear a kilt and love William Wallace. Oh, uh, I do love wearing a kilt. If there's a wedding, I'll, I'll try and get, rent a kilt or something. But they're expensive. People don't realize how expensive kilts are. You don't own one. No. Oh, they're like... For a good kilt, it's probably about a thousand pounds. About fifteen hundred dollars. Whoa! Screw Whoa, that. For like a bit of fabric. Whoa! All yeah, right. they're, they're custom enough. made. They're like they're like really really long, like you know several meters across, like because they wrap oh. around you and like they're and they're really thick, intricately woven. Like, um, but you can pick up a cheap one, but yeah, for a good one. So there's probably there's probably a reason like Scottish people love the kilt, but then they always walk into the shop and go, oh geez, can't can't afford that outlay. We'll go yeah. to the pants. The reason today. the reason we love our kilt so much is because we spent half our uh, income on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right it's more just an investment purchase i like that. that's it yeah okay okay then i've got to throw this next one out too uh i've i've in my time in england i i've come across a few british people that i felt like looked down on me because i was an aussie but mm. you wouldn't do that because you're scottish so you're on mm-hmm. my side on that one so we can together look down on the english if we if we like Easily. Um, so we'll throw that one out uh, okay, so you do some like deconstruction. You still like seem to be in this Christian world. You must be like a wishy-washy Christian. Like you just don't know what you believe. Um, oh, that's a tough one to answer. I'd like some nuance on that, but I'll go with no. Okay, no, not a wishy-washy. Okay, okay. Um, then you've got to be this the dirty U word. I'm going to use the dirty U word. You must be a universalist. Absolutely. Oh, I'd like more nuance on that as well. Of, yeah. Okay. There's a lot of, I feel like it may be some Christian listeners will, will uh, might have uh, just Phil guy. I don't know if he's on, he's, he's good to listen to. Um, I know okay. like probably about so, three quarters of uh, Christian history. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to, to the clickbait then you're helping people deconstruct. So you must be helping people turn their back on Jesus. No, I wouldn't say that. Okay, I've completely misled all our viewers with the clickbait then. The clickbait <laughs> is false, but sucked in for believing clickbait. You shouldn't believe it. Keep listening, obviously. You got you got them in for 10 minutes at least, though, before they all suddenly close. <laughs> okay, that's, you see the live numbers I just, I just plummet down. You know? So if you're still kind of like a Christian, you must be one of these Christians, like these liberal Christians that picking what they want, you're at the buffet, like, oh, I like this, I don't like that. You're just cho- picking and choosing what you want as a Christian. Is, is that it? Again, some nuance, but no. 
Okay, so some solid solid nose there. I want to ask you, Phil, because I was looking at some of your articles, and that's kind of where I ripped a, a bit mm. of the clickbait from. Uh, what are assumptions that people make about you? What are some common assumptions or misunderstandings that you've come across in your mm-hmm. line of work? Oh, so many. Um, some of the big, big assumptions. Um, I don't take the Bible seriously. I don't take God seriously. Um I'm trying to, I've, I've just gone down a slippery slope because I wanted to sin. That's a, that's a big one, right? Because the reason people oh, don't yes, that's Christianity is because you just want to sin. Um, you wanted a bit more sex in your life. Exactly. I, I'm married. That's I'm right. good. Like, yeah. And okay. I'm, I'm on a spectrum. I'm probably nearer the asexual spectrum. Like, I don't have a hugely high libido. Like, that's not a drive for me, you know? If yeah. you'd offer me some other you know, sin lots of money and whatever else, I don't know, maybe. But, like, no, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. So that's a no, no, no to those assumptions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, there's a, so many assumptions around people that deconstruct it. It's, it's a really, really, um, it's a hot topic that people love to. Th- we, we all love to throw under the bus anything that makes us feel nervous. Um, and so yeah. th- there's a, a lot of them. Um, I could go for a long time. And the other them. assumption, the, the the other big assumption is like if you if you deconstruct, and I guess this is why I'm talking to you. If you deconstruct, then you throw it all in the bin, and you're some hardline Dawkins great atheist, and you would sure. say yes or no to that. Mm. So I'm not, but that 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 happens. Yeah, I'm not going to say it doesn't. Right, right. It's quite it's quite rare actually, yeah. though, on the whole. And if it does happen, it's often for just a season for a lot of people. But plenty of people oh. do end up atheists. Yeah, that's that's one of the options on the table. Okay. Okay. Well, I I guess before we dive into that topic and all the work you've done mm. around deconstructing and helping people deconstruct, tell me a little bit about like your your background, you know, your family history, what yeah, denomination yeah. you might be a part of. Sure. Well, I I was a pastor's kid. Um both my parents were first generation oh. Christians. Um so we were my dad was a Baptist pastor, but Baptist means a, it's a very different thing than a lot of people presume Baptist means. Uh, most people's experience yeah. of Baptist, especially if you're in America, is like, you know, Southern Baptist, extremely conservative, you know, whatever. Um, that's not necessarily particularly true. It just is true of some of the more uh, extreme conservative versions of Baptist. But he was a charismatic, to give you an idea. So, he, he, you know, th- there was quite a eclectical spread of beliefs in my uh, in my upbringing. And it was quite charismatic. Um, when I grew up, I was kind of like, I don't really give a crap about this. It's just a bunch of old people getting to church, doing their thing. I don't really care. It works for my parents. I'm not that fussed. And then when I got to about 15, 16, my dad moved. He got a new job where he wasn't a pastor. He was working as a chaplain. And so it meant he could pick his church. And so he picked a church with like a hundred youth. And I was suddenly like, whoa, this is really cool. Mostly because there was lots of pretty girls, if I'm honest, right? But there was like loads of people my age and it's relevant and they're excited about it. So I got really into Christianity. I mean, I gave... Every night of the week I was at church or at a church event, I was constantly reading my Bible. I was doing all sorts of different stuff. And then I moved church to a more serious church. It was a brethren. So like hardcore conservative, like, you know, pray before you eat that peanut that God blesses it. You know what I mean? Like really intense. They don't. Did you you deliberately move that way? Did you want to go into that? So I, I wanted, I mean, there was, there was some dynamics of just different friends that were there and things like that. But I was like, these guys take it seriously. Right. You mean, you can't you can't fault that they really believe what they believe. I mean, women and men are sitting on other sides of the congregation. There's a woman's side and a men's side. And they have a lax they have a lax, you know, service where they can sit together. 
But really, if you're serious, you sit on the other side. <laughs> the the um, service and, where they're going to be distracted by the ladies. So get oh the ladies gosh. over there. because Seriously, some of them weren't wearing hats. I was like, unbelievable. Boners <laughs> everywhere. Um, <laughs> um, but, I, I, you know, you couldn't fault me for not being serious. I was really into this. And I and I just dedicated myself to studying. I like I came under the, the pastor and, and the teaching pastor was like, I want you to teach me. I want you to give me books to read and study. Um, and to you I'm, at this stage, when you're saying serious, you're meaning like legalistic, I, I, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very legalistic, really intent on pleasing God, on ticking all the boxes, on understanding what the Bible really means and, you know, and, and upholding that, all these kind of things. Um, and at the same time, though, I didn't not believe in the charismatic stuff my parents brought me up with. I've seen people getting healed and things like that. So I was a bit of a sore thorn in the side of this community because obviously they do not believe in things like that. Um, and eventually, anyway, I gave up everything. I I left, I ran my own business. I left my business and gave it to my partners. I walked away with nothing. I moved to California because again, I'm a bit extreme and I was like, oh, there's this thing called Bethel in California that has supernatural stuff and maybe they take stuff seriously. I mean, they're going into hospitals and praying for people and people get healed. Like I'm like, that's taking it seriously. Um, so I just gave up yeah. everything and moved to California with nothing and spent four years there learning what they were about, but realizing that I don't really uh, jive with a lot of their theology. At this point, I'm theologically exploring lots of different beliefs. I mean, i give you an idea. My first week at Bethel, they gave me a Bill Johnson book. If people are listening or charismatic, they'll know who Bill Johnson is. Uh, gave me his book and they're like, this is your first book. And I looked through the book list and I'm like, it's all people from Bethel. I'm like, this is like just a brainwashing camp, which it's good to get your brainwashed sometimes, but it's like, I'm not going to be exposed <laughs> to new ideas, you know? So my first week I read John Piper, God is the gospel, Bill Johnson, when Hannibal invades earth and a new type of Christian by Brian McLaren. Right. And so this gives you an idea of like, I was not a discriminatory uh, researcher. <laughs> I'm reading okay. progressive Christianity, hardcore gospel coalition, Bethel, you know, I mean, like, in the same week. Um, and that's how I approached it. This is your journey of, of growing up, I guess, trying to take the Bible seriously. And in, in one reading of it, you're taking it seriously and going into the legalism, like, what are the rules to being a Christian? And then mm -hmm. your, your next step is going, well, well, how come we're not healing people? And, and how, how can this Bible appear as it's written, like, literally, how can it literally be? So it's... it's it's like different forms. Is it different forms of literalism you kind of went through? That was like yeah. a literal rule following to a literal like manifestation of of being Jesus to the to the Bethel side. And yeah. all this time you're you're pursuing like what are you hoping to find? Like what are you not finding? And what are you hoping to find? I think I'm not finding cohesion. I'm not finding it all coming together, and I'm not finding um, I'm not finding a a unity within the trinity if i'm honest you've got a god who's a bit different than the sun you've got a spirit that's moving differently than you know it just it all felt a bit all over the place and to me it was really hard for me to kind of figure out what is going on you've got legalism but you've got grace how do they fit together and you've got this loving of your enemies but you've also got let's kill every single man woman and child in this town oh but keep the young females so we can rape them and, you know and, and most most christians gloss over that i'm reading it going it doesn't feel like jesus 
And so I'm sitting right. there with these questions when most people just going to go next page, next page. Oh, and then they got new houses. It was great. Okay, cool. Like that's how we, we deal yeah. with passages like that. You know, we just quick gloss through and then they got the promised lands. Ah, wonderful. Wait, no, no, no. You realize that they now have their promised lands and they're still raping the enemy's daughters because that was a provision that God said, you can do that. Like after yeah. the killing people, which also, by the way, we seem to be very okay with. Like, so I'm asking these questions going, this doesn't make sense. Um, I think really what it is, is if you're familiar with um, stages of psychological development, um, early stages, um, they as you're forming your ego, you, you tend to take things quite literally. You're looking for um, positions of authority to tell you what's true. So you look to a pastor or a God or a Bible or whatever, and it goes, this is what's true. Believe it. And I was really doing that really hard. But and that's the problem safe. is you can do it from so many different angles to try and figure out what's right. And, and your, your drive at these stages of development is that you want to feel safe. You want to feel certain. You want to feel secure. Um, and this is what most conservative Christians, or I should say conventional Christians, generally speaking, are in this space. They, they just want to feel pretty certain and secure. Why do you use the word conventional instead of conservative? That's an interesting... I, I think conservative is very loaded. And I think that we... Um, we typically create these kind of either ors, right? So we love a black, uh, white, yes, no, in, out, us, them, conservative, progressive, right. conservative, liberal or whatever. But actually those yeah. are fairly, um, they, they might work in different contexts. I mean, all dualisms work to a, to an extent um, is if you're willing to ignore all the, all the problems. Um, and so of course there's Christians that are conservative, but there's Christians that are conservative in how they approach sex but would be quite liberal in how they approach, I don't know, social welfare. There are Christians that are conservative in how they read the Bible, but are actually very progressive in how they love the LGBTQ community and just kind of put the Bible to the side or whatever it might be. So, so for me, I'm like, it's probably, it's too much of a loaded word. People immediately, all the progressives, you know, suddenly go, yeah, yeah, screw the conservatives. Yeah. And all the conservatives go, <laughs> oh, well, no, no. And it's like, no, no, why are we labeling ourselves? And why are we- It's a, got um, idea, political- you know, loading yeah everything is political right so you can't avoid the political element yeah. to it um you know but the, i think generally speaking if we talk more um conventional just uh, it's 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 the common expression of christianity um would uh, generally speaking be seeking a safety a certainty and a security in their faith they want to know what it is that's true what is it that i believe how do I believe it? Well, God told us it. He gave us a Bible. It's really clear. Just read the Bible. Oh, I feel safe. I feel certain. I feel secure. I am enjoying life. And that's that's really great. If people are at that stage, it's really, really good. And that's why I don't I don't shit all over the church. I think the church is great. It's really helpful. In fact, they've done studies where they um, looked at churches that are at later psychological stages where you're not looking for safety, certainty, and security. What you're generally speaking for, uh, with is you're looking for a bit more autonomy, but you're looking for a, a broader group, a broader group than just us, but all of us, you know, or at least more of us. Um, you're looking for how does our community actually affect the broader spectrum how do we include people that are on the other side so there's these kind of progressions what's interesting is they send those two types of churches into prisons and they studied how did this affect things and in prisons you have a much earlier stage which is very much generally speaking it's just smash and grab it's very ego driven it's very narcissistic it's not giving up its own welfare for the group it's not safe it's not certain it's not secure right it's very chaotic and what's interesting is I would look at that and go, oh, well, obviously these more uh, evolved and progressive Christians would do much better because they're a better version of Jesus, a better version of Christianity, a more enlightened perspective. 
what's interesting is they don't. They actually suck when they go into prisons. They, they just don't work. But people in the earlier stage of Christianity, which are based around safety, certainty, and security, thrive in prisons. People come out of prison. They come off of uh, you know those um, those models where they go straight back in. When they when they come out into progressive churches, they go straight back into prison because they don't have that that system of stability and certainty and security. Not all progressive churches. Again, problem with dualism there. But many progressive churches, and in the studies, that's that definitely weighs up. And so I think we, we're, we're, it's very dangerous to sum up these things as good or bad. They're not. They are what they are. And depending on where people are, they can either be the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world. You know, I wouldn't send toddler to university, but I wouldn't send a university student to a nursery. You know, like these are different places for different people at different stages. And no one's saying a university student is a better person than a toddler or a toddler is a better person than a university student. So I think it's really important that you grab that. I'm hearing like, because um, normally, like you're saying, the, the general narrative and general way people people process, you know, people might come out of a church that's caused a lot of hurt and trauma and need to to step away from that. But then this, you're describing this, There's there can be the tendency to label it as bad, the conservative or conventional way of doing it as not good enough, useless, rubbish, not sure. worth your time. But I'm hearing you describe... A, I suppose an openness and acceptance to the necessity of certain types of, I guess, belief structures and practice structures for both different people and different circumstances. Because I suppose what can happen when, you know, someone deconstructs or moves from one belief system to another the tendency can be to throw it all away, move beyond, like you'll hear it in, you know, sure. maybe some evangelical atheists or more progressive Christians to conservative Christians or uh, different people in different political uh, associations being like, th- like I'm now not there anymore and that's useless rubbish and you shouldn't be there either. And there becomes yeah. that almost evangelizing, like the hard, like the strong, some some versions of atheism is very like, if you're a Christian, you're an idiot and all of these things. Yeah. But it sounds like you're describing, you're describing like creating room and space for people to either still exist in those structures and also pointing to some benefits of the structure. Because I guess the deconstructed world always, and maybe rightly so, really pulls apart the conventional Christian world that has caused a lot of harm. We've spoken to mm-hmm. a few people on the podcast about purity culture and like damage to sexuality and LGBTQ yeah. like people really suffering from that. But then it's almost as if you're painting a picture that says it 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 is those things and has done those things, but it's also necessary for these people here and there as well. Does that sound? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Let me be straight. Like, you know, the church is a really fucked up thing <laughs> because it's full of people that are really screwed up, right? But the, the church has really screwed up the world in a lot of ways. Now, you can't take that on its own and say the end because actually the church has really moved the world forward in pretty remarkable ways. Would we have moved forward without it? Probably. Would we have moved forward the same way or the same pace? We don't know, right? We just don't know what the, the you know, what the future looks like in different circumstances you, you just have to make it so i'm not 
saying that it's good that the church is deeply racist, that it's colonistic, that it's um, you know homophobic, that it's transphobic, that it's obsessed with purity in weird and wonderful ways, like so bizarre. Um, like these are really, really bad and damaging and unhelpful things. However, generally speaking, they still function for people that are in that place. So people that are in that place, having some sort of structure that helps them grow is still better than people that are in that place having no structure at all that doesn't facilitate the growth. Um, and so um, it's absolutely like we, 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 we all are going to gravitate and create these, these systems in the place we are. Now, what will it look like when humanities evolve? If we go through, forward a couple hundred years, right? You talk to any 15 year old and they're going to be like, what, homophobia? Like, what are you like? calm down grandpa like they're just gonna be like what are you talking about right because kids have grown up and gone uh no even kids in the church are a bit like dude this is really messed up because i've got trans friends i've got gay friends like really screwed up like what the frick right i mean most teenagers are in that place already you give it another 20 years another 30 years like once we've all died off the, the world will be a better place <laughs> no one's no one's questioning that if we don't destroy the world first right but but um so, so will those structures be required when we have evolved in these ways? Will we need those things? Maybe, maybe they'll look very different. Maybe they won't be so destructive. Maybe we won't need it. Maybe the, at that point, we will use different structures that create the safety, certainty, and security, but are rooted in different things or have different ideals. And what, what we fail to see is Christianity evolves. We, we, we think Christianity today is what Christianity has always looked like. It's not true at all. Um, it's just radically different. Even things like purity culture, we think that's how we've operated all, all these years. Oh, it's not? Like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, for the majority of uh, Christian history, it's been totally fine if a guy goes off and sleeps with someone else, just turn a blind eye to it. Um, because, because sex was about property. It was never about love. It was never, marriage was never about love. Marriage is a brand new concept, a marriage for love. It's about 150, 200 years old. Before then, no one got married for love. It was about property and it was about power. It was about connections, right? So the point being, when we read a Bible that's 2,000, 3,500 years old, somewhere in that window, and it's saying, oh, make sure you don't ever sleep with anyone before you uh, marry, which by the way, it doesn't say that, but we presume it does because it's the culture that's what they're doing. We have to remember, well, actually, it's because, hey, make sure you don't do this because you're property and no one's going to get paid for you if you do that. And also no one's going to want you. And then you're going to die alone fairly young because no one survives very long if you don't get married and have kids. Um, and so there's all these different structures. It's like homosexuality. We talk about homosexuality as if that's a thing. Like, it's not a thing. It's a brand new thing. Homosexuality was about 150 years old. Before that, they had homoeroticism. They had people sleeping with the same sex. But there was no concept of people having an... Um, a desire to sleep with the same sex in a, in a relational way for love because that was something that happened outside of marriage anyway. And that's why it was quite common that men would sleep with men and women would sleep with women outside of their marriage. That's why you have the term love child is about someone that marries, uh, that, that, that has sex with someone outside their marriage because you marry the property for the power, for the structure, for the connection. You sleep with the love child, with, with the person that's going to give you the love child. You sleep with the person you love with. That's that's outside the marriage, historically. So even our concept of purity culture, that's not true. It doesn't exist up until very recently. 
keep unpacking, I, I suppose, that idea for me, because many, uh, let's go with conventional Christians, would, would have the idea, and you hear it in the, some of the examples you're giving, that uh, traditional marriage, like this is the way marriage has already been. And yep. uh, speaking to a friend recently, they said, like, it's clear homosexuality is an abomination, and it's clear it's in the Bible. But what I'm yep. hearing you say is that what we are saying is in the Bible is overlaid with a cultural construct of the word homosexuality and of the word purity and of the word marriage. And you're saying that this, this layer of culture is like 200 years old when the most of the existence of, I guess, the scriptures in the Bible, like you're saying, when it's using the word homosexuality, that's a translation that's not referring to what we would call homosexuality today. Is that is that kind of what you're saying in that like, sure. it's not what is being spoken about? Absolutely. So let me put it this way. When um, the we, we, we read in the Bible and we, we read uh, Jacob went from, you know, Bethel over to Canaan, right? What's he, how is he doing that? Is he walking? Is he going on a donkey or is he driving in his car? Because the way we read our Bible is he's driving in the car. Now, we don't do it with that example, but that's how we do it with marriage. That's how we do it with sex. That's how we do it with sexuality, gender. These are modern constructs that we only are beginning to unpack, right? It's a very new gender. is a brand new idea. Like, it's a really, really modern idea. The concept of, oh, gender is a social construct. It's, it's, it's a spectrum. It's not necessarily linked specifically to sex. Like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting thing. I wonder what the Bible says about it. Nothing. We just freaking came up with a thing. That's like saying, what does the Bible say about helicopters? Or you know what I mean? And so I think that's the danger is when we read someone going, oh, they went from A to B. Are we going, oh, which private jet did they take? Probably not. It's 3,500 years ago, right? So of course we go, well, what was it like then? How did they travel? Or what was it like then? How did they marry? When you read someone getting married in the Bible and you're like, oh, wow, like, they liked that person. Oh, they probably went on a few dates and then they decided, oh, they liked each other and then they got engaged and, you know, that draw out and then they got married. No, someone said, I want, they or their parents bought that person, more than likely a young child. They waited for that child to have their periods and then they raped that child. And that was the wedding night, right? Because today we would say anyone that's sleeping with a child, even if it was consensual, there's no real possibility of consenting there. It's, 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 it's statutory rape is what we would call it today. That's how marriage has worked for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. Keep adding thousands for a very long time. That's how marriage was. So, so let me channel a friend of the show who I spoke to recently, uh, Bart Campolo, who's like the, the mm. humanist, like a humanist chaplain. And I can hear him say something like, and we spoke about it a little bit. It, it's a, and maybe some atheists will think the same thing, being like, if you're describing this text that seems to be talking about things that don't exist now, doesn't have answers for some difficult things that we're, that we're going through and talking about now, like, what's the point? Like, why even bother mm -hmm. with, why even bother with this book? And my, one of my other friends, will, yeah. he'd probably say, you're like some slippery eel just trying to like, like dodge and move the difficult questions. And, and you know, they, they'd say you're not like... Like you're not standing for anything. You're just kind of like, what's the, I guess, why hold on to the Bible if you have to like yeah. do all this like Jenga with it to, to maintain it? Well, I mean, what's fascinating is this is how the Jews approach the scripture. 
like Jews approach scripture as a launch pad for conversation. So it's really interesting, but Jewish people have never read the Bible the way that conventional Christians read it today. They actually laugh hysterically at the way the people read the Bible because they're like, you got our book and then turned it into this weird Ouija boards where you just kind of point the finger and go, oh, it says that, so it must be this. Like, um, that's not weird how Ouija works. board, man. That's going to trigger some people. The Bible's a Ouija board. I should have made that my clickbait. Boom. Yeah. That's what it is. It says that, so that's the way it works. Done. And and Jews go, no, the, the Bible is a conversation and it's a, a collection of writings by many people talking about the journey that they've gone on with God and they are wrestling with God. The very name Israel means wrestle with God. And that was in the culture of Jerusalem, uh, of Jerusalem, of Israel and the Jews where they wrestled with God to try and figure out who God was and what was God like. And we see that evolve in the Bible. In the Bible, we see people changing their minds. We see people questioning other parts of the Bible and other people's experiences. We see that going on all, all the time um, to the point where um, there's a, uh, a theologian who says that the Jews open their Bible to start a conversation Christians open their Bible to end conversations. And I think that's the difference, right? So what's happening is we now open our Bibles as a science book, as a history book, uh, as a book on sexuality. It's none of those things. So this is why I open the Bible. I open it to cause me to go into a deeper place and go, how can this inform my spirituality? How can this make me consider what it is to be a divine being, what it is to be in connection with divinity, with itself, with God? How does this inform me on what is God like? Um, And I look at these journeys of people going, God's like this and God going, no, not quite. I'm more like this. And I, and I see these conversations going on and I'm going, wow, I'm, I'm being informed. I'm being challenged. I'm being questioned, Uh, you know, and and I see people questioning, what is the nature of living life? Well, how do you live a life? Well, and, and you go, oh, wow. So the Jews actually are really remarkably progressive in a lot of ways. So you see this culture where everyone marries for connection and for power and force, you know, these kind of um, relational components, not for love. What's interesting is the Jews were quite unique because they had a policy of, yeah, and then you should fall in love with this person that you've been cho- that's been chosen for you by your family and you should be faithful to them, right? So you shouldn't go and off and sleep with another guy or with another woman. You should stay faithful to this person that you, you've, you've been assigned. And so that's a very progressive idea at the time because they're shifting towards, we, we marry for... Um, power and structure with our family's desire with no love at all and then we go and sleep with people that we fall in love with and have affairs and things and that was very common and it still happens in judaism all the time we see it in our bible god are you kidding me have you seen any of the like most of them have concubines coming out the ears um and then we move forward and 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 jews are navigating this and their question is it actually a good way to live is this way of, of kind of a polyamorous way of living is it healthful is it good now i'm not saying that if you come to the place of being polyamorous i'm not saying that you shouldn't but i'm I, these are the questions they're asking pretty progressive questions at the time pretty like um controversial and radical and then they go maybe we should be completely faithful to one that's 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 a really and maybe we should fall in love with this one person rather than looking for love wherever it might find us. So the point is, I guess there's beautiful things in the scriptures if we approach it as a question of how are we engaging with God and how is God reflecting onto us? If we approach it as a a science book and go, oh, well, when was the earth created? How long did it take? We look like freaking morons. And that is what, you know, Christianity looks like when they start having a conversation about how old the earth is or whatever. If you approach it as a science book, well, the book, the Bible says that, that three is pi. Now, I don't know how far you got into maths, but I'm assuming you know that three is not pi, right? Everyone knows that pi, at least a few numbers, right? is 
one four two one nine. oh i was gonna go one seven i don't know <laughs> you, got, you got you knew there was a point you knew more than the jews but the point is the bible says that pi is three and so is the bible wrong do we throw it out no we just go well christian the, the, the jews didn't know maths at an advanced level they actually were pretty impressive that they figured out there's something called pi and it's around three like that's pretty good really quite good for bronze age people so you know let's not hold it against them but let's not look at the bible and go oh well it's supposed to be a mathematical textbook and so we have to throw it out because it's wrong no 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 what the point is when they're talking about pi what's it actually talking about oh it's talking about the ark it's talking about the nature of god maybe this flood that flooded the world and killed everyone lots of people have different stories and most of them are that god's just got pissed off with men and they're really pedantic and childish what what about a different story what about a story of god who is gracious but needs purity and it's it's moving people in a, in a healthier way it's evolving their ideas of god it's challenging their ideas of god and i think if we can look at it as that as a conversation it's not necessarily going to be a terrible thing if we look at it as this perfect text it perfectly describes on every page and every word what god's like we're going to get messed up because we're going to go into canaan we're going to kill every man woman and child and keep the small young girls for ourselves because that's what god is about that's what he loves so you're saying that the Bible is useful for starting conversations into, I suppose, deeper, I don't want to use, I don't want to necessarily use the word like spiritual, but if I was to define that as the, the human is more than the sum of its parts, just like an artwork mm. is the more than paint and canvas. And if I define spiritual as that, you would say the Bible is a useful tool for beginning a conversation about this spiritual and the deeper parts of life. Is that, is that about right as to like why you would still have I think it's a huge find part value of it. in it? Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah. here's the deal. If you um, if you were really struggling with anxiety and stress and you were constantly living in the future or worrying about the past and a um, your therapist said, hey, Conrad, right, I really think you probably need to start um, trying to learn how to live in the present, right? What would you do, right? You'd probably go pick up some books about it or whatever, but I guarantee before long you would end up pulling from Eastern mysticism you'd end up pulling from some hindu some taoist some uh, buddhist trains of thought even if you only read it through a christian lens some christians read it and interpreted it for you or whatever so it's safe or whatever but you, i guarantee why because these guys have spent five thousand years sitting at the top of a mountain doing nothing going let's be present in this moment and they've done that for five thousand plus years like They've, they've got some some stuff that we can learn from as someone that spent zero time doing it and suddenly wakes up one day going, I'm going to try and be present. I'm going to look at the person that's done it for 5,000 years. And I think this is how we need to approach spiritual texts. When we approach something like the Bible, it's, it's a really good idea rather than going, right, I'm going to try and figure out everything from scratch, right? If you go, I'm going to... I'm going to I'm going to figure out the mysteries of the world and explore metaphysics and philosophy, right? You don't go, all right, nobody talked to me. I'm not reading anything. I'm just going to sit in a room and figure it out. That's one option for sure. But you know what? You could also sit down and read Kant and Plato and Socrates and, you know, um, all these different amazing philosophers, you know, that's going to probably give you a better platform to then build your own concepts and ideas. And I think this is what we're seeing in the Bible is they're constantly building and they're constantly developing it. Jesus comes along and goes, hey, this is the this is the point. This, this is the summation of it, and let me help you interpret these conversations. But generally speaking, when we open the Bible, we're, we need to recognize it's a conversation, and we need to join that conversation. 
and you're you're pointing out these, I suppose, different ways of reading the Bible that certain Christian groups or certain people might have. They might have the literalist worldview, like that's like the the book the the Bible is a scientific textbook, and it's six literal days and pi maybe be three, but well, no, no, we understand that one's okay and non-controversial. But this other one, six literal days evolution and and all those things, you're right. saying there's like different ways, and the way you're describing it is is as some level of, of diving deeper into the human progression towards spirituality, morality. The yeah. um, Talk to me about your, I guess, your journey through these readings of the Bible that, that you're describing. You're talking about, you're talking about as you went through like legalism, and the way you understood and read the Bible there, and then you're going into like Bethel, which is, I guess, its own form of literalism being like, no, no, I'm oh, going hey, into the hospital and I'm going to raise these people from the from the dead. Yeah, it's an interesting, I've never thought of it as a, like a fundamental, like the charismatic gold dust from the ceiling, like very like literal manifestations. But let me go further. Progressive churches are fundamental. They're still very fundamental in black and white. And so they still have uh, deeply rooted in this hard dualistic thinking. Um, they still have an us and them. They might like more people in their us, but they still definitely have a them. And it's usually the conservative church. Um, and so we're, we're all doing it as we grow. And maybe we we evolve to the point where we we step into some non-duality. We tiptoe into that world. I think most of us are tiptoeing. Very few of us live in that place. Um, I think estimates are about 1.5% of the planet might be living non Non-duality <laughs> being like being able to accept like a yes and no at the same time, like being able, I guess maybe you gave an example of it being like the conservative world had like, I I guess it might be summed up. I think I heard Peter Rowland say something like at its best, uh, traditional, uh, conventional churches give structure to people who need all these things. And then at, at, at its worst, it's, it's imperial, it's uh, exclusionary, it's all of these other things. That, it, would that be the example of non-dualism, being able to say at its best and at its worst? It, it might be, but I would say even the concept of best and worst is a duality, right? So I'm now deciding what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, right? So to me, it's... it's um, when we look at how humans evolve and grow psychologically, we, we spend the first few years evolving and, and building an ego and understanding the right and wrong and, and, and kind of creating these kind of structures. And it really is a parallel of the garden, right? I mean, the garden is where we eat this fruit and we suddenly know what's right and what's wrong. And we kind of like suddenly realize, oh gosh, I'm my, I'm my own being. I, I can be like God. I can, I can have this identity, this power, this, this self. And so there's this growth um, that we go through. But as we go, um, if you go and talk to most, maybe a bad example for some people, but in most cultures, if you go talk to the oldest people in the culture, they're the most likely to give you a, mm, maybe, sure, come back to me in 10 years, right? That's that's usually the answer of the old people, right? They're, they're not even uh, so black and white that they give you their yes or no. Um, uh, so let me give you an example of duality in, in a sense, right? So there was um, an old Chinese proverb, but there was a Chinese farmer and one day he um, was out on his uh, rant on, on his farm and he, he found uh, a horse had run onto his, um, uh, his farm and he was like, this is amazing. I've got, I've got a free horse. And so he, you know, padlocked all up and everything he's like that's great so he sits down at dinner and his friends come over and they're like what happened today he's like oh I, I, a horse just showed up and it's mine now and like, oh that's really good news and he says maybe and then the next day 
um, the horse breaks out and runs away. It breaks the fence. And um, and so he's sitting down at dinner again and people are like, oh, what happened today? He's like, oh, that horse, I lost it. And like, oh, that's really bad news. And he's like, maybe. Um, the next day it comes back and there's a whole bunch of horses with it. And he's like, oh, cool. I've got like four horses now. <laughs> and, and so everyone goes, oh, that's that's great news. And he's like, maybe. The next day, his son is in the in the field and um, he's trying to train one of the horses and tame it. And the horse kicks him off and he falls and breaks his arm. And so they're sitting around dinner again and, and his friend's gone, oh, it's such a bad thing that your, your son broke his arm. And he's like, maybe. And the next day, a knock comes at the door and it's the Chinese army saying, hey, we're conscripting. We're going to war. We need every young male that's healthy to come with us because we're going to war. And then at night, they go, oh, that's great news. Your son, you know, like he doesn't have to go to war. Uh, and he goes, maybe. And then the next day, I don't know, maybe his son falls off a cliff and dies. You know what I mean? The point is, we don't know always what's good and what's bad, right. what's right, what's wrong. So I think dualism is stepping beyond our judgment of what's right and wrong even at all, potentially. Um, so I think it's even one step beyond that. I think that's how that's how that can often look to people that are still in dualism is that that people will present for them oh yeah, maybe it could be that, or it could be this, you know, if, if you're, if you're kind of moving into non-duality, but you're working with people that are very dualistic, you need to be gracious enough to kind of work with where they're at. Cause they're just going to think you're some weird washy, wishy-washy, right? This is it. Wishy-washy. You don't believe anything. It's like, no, That's I do. Not... But actually I'm just aware that like, you're not in a place to kind of understand where I'm coming from. Um, you see this yeah, conversation. Uh, Remember Rob Bell with Love Wins, and he had these. Uh, yes, he got crucified, yes. right? But he's on TV and he's having these interviews, and they have some kind of person from the Gospel Coalition or something. You know, really hard line. This is the Bible, and it's literal. Blah 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 blah. And they'd have that person on for five minutes, and then Rob on for five minutes, and like you make your points, and then we'll see who wins. And you can see in Rob's eyes, he's just like, "Wow, crap, I'm screwed." Because like he's got so much depth of how you build your points and how you create some context and how you uh, evolve to see things slightly differently. That's not going to come across in five minutes. Whereas the other person just goes, I read this Bible verse and it says that there is a, the word hell is there. So it's, it's there. It's fine. And you're like, yeah, that works for a lot of people. Everyone goes, well, he won the argument. And so it just depends where you're at. Really. I think a lot of these things. So are you, are you saying that that, I suppose, capacity to say, well, maybe, and to hold off that judgment and that categorization leaves you more open to receive more inputs and context or, or like what, what is the benefit? Like some people might say you like stand for nothing, fall for everything. You, you're mm-hmm. one of these people that, well, you don't have any morality. You won't take it. You won't stand for justice when we need to. You won't stand for freedom. You won't, you, you wouldn't do what's necessary to protect what you need to protect because you're too busy not taking sides and sitting on the fence and, and being undecisive. Like un- unpack that for me. Sure. I think there's a big difference between living with conviction about what you believe and holding it over other people and even yourself, holding it over yourself, that it is a fixed truth that must be eternally there and, and no, nothing can touch it. And so that's how we often deal with our beliefs is like, this is it. We've figured it out. Must convert everyone to that belief. Everyone that doesn't believe that belief is terrifying me. All these different things. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm not interested in that. But I'm also not interested in going, well, maybe we don't know how this will pan out. For me, the, the maybe is about what we don't know. And I think if we're going to be honest, we don't know a lot of things. 
Um, the future is uncertain, right? I don't know. Now, is it good that a horse came? Yeah, I'm going to celebrate that I've got a horse. I'm going to be happy about having the horse. But I'm not going to say this is going to be a good thing for me and my family because I don't know, <laughs> right? So I'm not going to make that judgment and I'm not going to build my future around something I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm holding that lightly whilst enjoying it in the present. And I think this is the, the thing. And so what is what is right for me to do right now in this present moment that I can know that I that I like, look at this, right? So you, you have all these people that were um, massively progressive fighting for women's rights, the turn of the last century, right? 1900s, all these amazing suffragettes movements and things like that. Yeah, absolutely astonishing. But you fast forward 100 years and these people are racist assholes because we're not talking about women's rights anymore. We're talking about race race right and so the point is that you in the moment can go well i'm fighting my fight and i'm doing what's right and that's great but actually i don't know if i'm good or i'm bad or if i'm on the right side of history or the wrong side of history and there's a lot more going on it's, this is why politics is such a freaking joke right we make politics about two or three points but actually there's hundreds of thousands of points that make up a political kind of um structure that, that runs a country a country or something and so we go, oh, it's all about abortion. If he's for abortion, he's evil. If he's against abortion, he's good. It's like, no, this guy rapes children, but he's saying he'll ban abortion. Can we have some nuance, right? Like, or whatever. <laughs> um, so, so you're saying this, this non-dualistic stance, um, as I try and wrap, wrap my head around mm -hmm. it, if, if, if you're being dualistic, let's say judging the, this is good and this is bad into these two tiny boxes, like we did at the beginning, I'm, I'm hearing you say something like it tries to cast the judgment of the moment onto the future. And then it's likely that th in the future, it might become the very judgment that sure. you wanted to set in stone now and at, at this moment and you're saying well if we hold off going okay in this moment it, it's helpful and useful but i don't know about the future so i'm going to what hold off my projections and judgment and fear and sure. maybe even hope is yeah. that like is that i guess it's, of... it's let's draw the diff the, the there's a dividing line between observing and judging Okay. So an observation okay. is where I take a step back and I just see what is, and I only have very, very limited perception for what is right. I am looking at you right now. You've got your head tilted. You've got your hand on your head. kind of look at me. I'm like, he's probably quite interested. He's leaning in. He's wanting to understand me, but I don't know. Right. My judgment might be without well, texting judgment. in this hand. <laughs> right. Exactly. My judgment is, Oh, this guy, likes me or is interested or maybe my judgment is oh, this guy's kind of bored he's got his hand up he's kind of texting like he's got the phone just above the <laughs> other phone so he can look like he's looking into the camera yeah. I, I those three phones and 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 judgment okay. judgment creates a world that i suffer but it, it's not a real world i live in that world i create but it's not real observing so you're creating a story exactly so right. it's trying to it's trying to take away the stories that we add to our to our reality and live in the present um, I think that's that's the uh -huh. goal of non-duality is to go, let's stop creating a story that we don't know is true and instead live in what we know is true right now. And what's true right now, I can observe that black people are dying around me. Okay, let me work on racial inequality and trying to change systemic racism. Now, my judgment of like, why did that person do it? Who's this person? Like they're evil, they need to go or whatever. I actually don't know a lot of people. I don't know how much they're in bondage to the system, why they did it, right? This is why we, mm. we put people in prison for um, 
for doing drugs, right? And we go, oh, these are terrible people doing drugs. Well, I don't know that. Let me read their story. And you go, oh my God, I'd probably be hooked to drugs as well. Maybe we should have just tried to help this person rather than punish them. Um, so, so our judgments get us in a right. lot of trouble when we add what we don't know. Um, and instead, we should be working on changing what we're observing and, and, and being present in what we know. So you're trying to give more space and intellectual humility to what we don't know because mm. it sounds like your operating definition of judgment is to take what we observe draw inferences into the realm that we can't be sure of and we don't know and that can create suffering and unnecessary fear for me maybe it's a judgment on this person mm. who committed a crime and i'm thinking that person is evil they're out to get me and take my money when in actual fact that person was desperate needed food and sure. and if if they had different opportunities in life, it might not have gone that way. And they're not a purely evil person. But if I make those judgments, I live in fear and create this suffering for myself in this fear. And I might interact with someone else. I don't know based on that judgment and maybe cause them to suffer a little bit. Cause I'm thinking they're a tool and they're an evil person or something. Is that, is that like, Absolutely. is it, it sounds like some level of intellectual humility being like, listen, I don't know everything. Here's what I see. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to pause and, and hold off on that. Is, is that what you're saying? Yes. But living passionately with what I believe right now. So here's the thing. I don't know, but I, I feel convicted of what I believe so far, what I've come to learn. It's not going, I know nothing. It's So there's a difference between what we what we know and what we know we don't know, right? And so that when we combine those, that's when we get to live well. So we go, right, I think I know this stuff and that's how I'm going to live my life, right? Because from what I've gathered so far, I'm really confident that um, you know, killing black people indiscriminately in the streets is probably bad, right? I'm fairly confident on that one so far. History might prove me wrong. I don't know, right? Obviously joking here, but like, you know, like I'm pretty confident this is a good thing to be like, you know, working on. However, um, I also know that I don't know everything. I don't know what it looks like to police a city. I don't know what it looks like to run a nation. I don't know what it looks like to carry out prison reform. So I'm not going to, as an individual go, Hey, I've got my ideas, follow them through. I'm going to, I'm going to, work with other people i'm going to extend grace mm. and humility um and and try and work with other people as we figure this out together um i guess it's just these are just examples anyway of non-duality but um yes. but i think it's 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 important that we all recognize this is the problem with um most conventional christians don't realize that they because they're not doing this they are doing they're still picking and choosing people go god oh, people deconstructing pick and choose their bible verses it's like you realize conventional christians do that too right i mean we're not all going into canaan and killing people we're not um you know we've we've kind of evolved beyond um you know slavery at least or certain things like that it's like yeah but we're mostly not a proponents of slavery but the bible says you can be slave owners and and it's a good thing and it's fine i mean that that was the main voice for supporting slavery was Christian. Um, but we've evolved beyond it. And we suddenly go, ah, okay, fine. We'll put that those verses to the side. Let's maybe love your neighbor. There's no slave. There's no free. Like, let's elevate those scriptures above this scripture. So we all do it. We all pick and choose. Um, right. I'm just being honest with I'm picking and choosing, but I've got a, a system in place of how I go about it, which is how Jesus picked and choose. Jesus picking and choosing is fascinating, um, but there's not one scripture Jesus quotes where he doesn't change it. Every scripture Jesus quotes, he either adds to it, removes from it, um, or completely misquotes it. Um, and, and that's a fascinating component. His first message when he teaches it is the Jubilee text, a very famous text. In, so he either in, didn't know the Bible or he was deliberately doing it. 
Sure. I mean, and as you know, I mean, he was a peasant growing up in Nazareth. I mean, there's a town of a hundred people. He's a, he's stonemason. You know, I mean, he's probably got very little education. It's possible he didn't know, um, but <laughs> it's actually a miracle he's so educated. To be honest with you, um, but. What's really interesting is his first message, he goes and he teaches this Jubilee text, which is one of their favorite texts, because it is when, you know, it's the year of God, he's going to set everyone free, he's going to, you know, heal eyes, he's going to do all his good stuff, you know, release bondage and, and prisoners. And then he's going to kick the living shit out of the Romans. And that's how it ends, right? I mean, that's how they interpreted that last line. But that's how it ends. It, it, the whole point is, this is the year we're finally going to whatever. And that's he just cuts it off at the end and that's their favorite part the jews loved the bit where they get freedom this is off the back of the maccabee rebellion it's off the back of hundreds and hundreds a couple of thousand years of israel or maybe about a thousand and a half of israel constantly rebelling and trying to break free of the babylonians the canaanites oppressing them the persians oppressing them like they're constantly the underdog and their favorite bit about the passage is well one day you'll be the big dog and everyone else is going to bow down to you and Jesus goes, yeah, no, everyone's great. Everyone's going to be blessed. Everyone's going to be this. The end. He takes away the favorite part. Now, every, what? so are, are the Romans also blessed? Are the Roman eyes getting opened? Like, what, what's happening here? And they try and kill him, right? It says that they were astonished that he was so gracious and they tried to kill him. Um, and so we see this as a pattern throughout Jesus' life. He constantly is uh, questioning their, their critiques, right? We have the idea that um, if you do good, you'll be blessed. If you do bad, you'll be cursed. That's the idea of the law. In the first five books of the Torah, that's the main kind of theme is that you do good, you'll be blessed. You do bad, you'll be cursed. Now the prophets all the way through question it. The Psalms question it. The wisdom texts question that. They're like, well, there's plenty of good people that have a really crappy deal. And there's plenty of bad people that seem to get off no problem, scot-free. Um, and so they're questioning that all the way through the Bible. And Jesus comes along and his disciples go, hey, that guy that's sick, who sinned, him or his parents? And he goes, that's not how it works. What's he saying? He's saying, no, there's parts in your Bible that point to that's, that belief about how God works. It's not true. Or what about Sodom and Gomorrah when Jesus talks about that? People don't realize that I'm not talking about the passage they think. Um, but Sodom and Gomorrah, there's five different passages in the Old Testament that mention Sodom and Gomorrah. And every single one say it's about their inability to be hospitable. People think it's about homosexuality. It's not about that. You can't be gay with an angel. That's like saying you're being gay with a cat if you sleep with it. It's sex doesn't really matter. Trust me. Um, you're sleeping with a cat. Um, you know, like, so the fact that these people lost the that's not what it's about. It's about inhospitality. In fact, all the ancient myths of um, angels or gods coming to town and trying to find hospitality, not getting it, and then destroying the town, that's a really common story in a lot of different cultures. And um, you can go and search that online. Um, but the Sodom and Gomorrah, every single time, all these ancient myths are always about the people being inhospitable. It's a really important theme in ancient cultures is you've got to be hospitable to strangers um, because they might be a god. They might be an angel. We don't know. And so Sodom and Gomorrah's story, they're not hospitable. They get destroyed. And then um, Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, I'm trying to think where else. There's several people mention it and they mention it as an inhospitable act. That's what it's about. So then what happens? Jesus is disciples go into some towns and they try and heal the sick with with jesus and all sorts of stuff and it goes crap so they turn to jesus and go hey jesus those guys weren't very hospitable should we call down fire right they're thinking this is our moment right we, we got the upper hand we're the messengers of god they were unhospitable let's rain down fire like sodom and gomorrah what does jesus say he says you don't know what spirit that's off what's he saying the person that pours fire on a town for being inhospitable is not god that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not me. That's not Father. He's critiquing the narrative that God pours out fire. 
So he's critiquing things in their tradition frequently. And then what's interesting is they ask him, look, Jesus, how the hell are you being so gracious? How are, how are you so fast and loose with the law, with, with, the, with the Torah? How do you read the Torah? And he says, here, I'll tell you how I read it. You love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with your soul, with your mind, your strength, and you love your enemy as uh, you love your neighbor as you love yourself and your, your neighbor includes your enemy, right? Those are two passages from Deuteronomy that he's sandwiched together and he's put out there and says, this is it. What's interesting is he's changed it again because <laughs> those passages mm. don't include loving with your mind. Right. They say, love the Lord, your God, with your heart, your soul, and your strength. And Jesus adds, oh yeah. And use this thing between your freaking skull, like use your brain to figure out what's loving that's what my father is like. And if you read your text and it's not loving, it's not my father. It's you. You interpreting my father wrong. You're projecting your violence, your need for suffering, your need for punishment, your need for vengeance is being projected onto God because we all do this, right? I mean, you and I have done this countless times. I guarantee we've, um, in, in our past, we've prayed. God said, oh, uh, you are going to get that job. If you go for, if you go for that job interview, you'll get the job. And we're like, yes, we go for the job interview. And then we don't get it. And we go, wait, what? And then six months later, the person at that job interview calls you and says, Hey, I've actually got another job, but I was thinking of you, you've been perfect. You've been on my mind for six months, come in and get the job and you get the job. Now you get a different job and you look back and you go, wait, what did God actually say? He said, if I go for that job interview, there'll be a job for me. It wasn't that I get that job. But I projected my thoughts, my desires, my feelings, how I frame the world, how I see the situation. And I gave voice to what God was saying that he wasn't actually saying. And this is what we see again and again and again. In the Old Testament, we see these two voices. We see the voice of man for God and the voice of God for God, right? And there's these two voices in that conversation. And Jesus is going, let me help you decide which is which. So then give me your criteria for what we're, I guess, calling now picking and choosing. Because some people might sure. look at what you're saying. And, and if, Je if if Jesus is like, once again, that they might say that he's, he's the son of God or he is God. He can do whatever he wants with the text and that's okay. But you feel you're not the son of God. You can't do that. But, uh, because the, the fear might be that you're just going to... And I think this is the... Maybe you've gotten this as well, people saying it to you, like maybe you're just wanting to sin or be more loose. And so you're going to use a text to say like, it's okay. Jesus changed the scripture. So I'm going to change the scripture to say, yo, yeah, yeah. give me all your money and do what you want. Like how, how do you respond to that fear that might be thrown at you? Yeah. And what is your then criteria for picking and choosing? Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I think people that make this life choice, generally speaking, get a lot less money than people that give you a hard and fast. This is what the Bible tells you. Um, generally speaking, this is not a good choice for you. If you want to sin, if you want to live a life doing whatever you want, because this makes it way harder because it takes out the component of humans doing what they want. They It takes that component out and it makes it... Uh, oh, sorry. Um, sorry. Um, it, it takes that component out. So for me, there's two voices in the scripture, right? So you've got these two voices going on and, and the Jews approach this this way as well. They say the voice of God is there and the voice of man and it's a, it's a wrestling, right? And we're wrestling. We're trying to figure out which people speak right. Let me give you the example of Job, right? So we open up the book of Job. Let's just shrink it into one book and go, okay, which voices are, are describing God? So you've got, you start up, Satan describes God, okay? Do we go, cool, he's right. We go, eh, he's Satan, maybe let's wait and see how the story goes before we make a judgment saying that, that whatever he says to God is right just because it's in the Bible, right? 
And then we move along and Job um, has this terrible calamity and his wife go, uh, and his friends, they're all going like, oh, God is this and God is that. Just give up. You're wrong. You know, whatever. And, you know, his wife's saying, curse God and die. God's a terrible God. Again, do we go, ah, well, it's in the Bible. Job's wife is correct or Job's friends are correct. No. And then Job comes along and goes, no, no, I'm, I've done nothing wrong. I'm sure God's got a reason. And we go, oh, Job's probably correct. No, we, we continue to read the story. And then, G, and then God comes along and goes, hey, guys, you're all freaking wrong. You're a bunch of idiots. Look at me. I'm making hippos and whales over here. I'm the best. And then the story kind of ends, right? Um, and then he gets his stuff back twice as much because that's yeah, I remember what the hippo and wild life. Yeah. If your if your kids are killed, all you want is just double the kids again. That will make it better. Um, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> well, again, kids and women, apparently, kids and women are property in this culture. So actually, that does make it better, right? Um, but this is this is the uh, the weird part. But the point is, we read that story and we go, "There's many voices describing what God's like." And we all know in this, in, when we shrink it down to this micro example, we go, oh, well, I'm looking for what God's voice is. And everyone else is this kind of, there's stuff to be learned from that. I can look and go, oh, how did Job interact? Well, he wasn't, he wasn't correct about God's, but he had quite a few things that were correct, more than his friends or his wife, right? And so we, we're seeing this kind of like component of this different stuff going on here. We weigh up everything. We look at it for what it is. We take what's helpful and valuable. And then we go, we'll stick with what God says about defining God, though. Let's maybe leave God to do that. Now, the Bible is a bigger picture of that. It's constantly doing this. It's, it's constantly people saying, I think God's like this. I think God's like that. Now, there's loads of truth in it. There's loads of wisdom. They're definitely growing. So there's definitely progressive um um, wisdom and, and grace and, and understanding of love and all these amazing principles of who God is. But Jesus comes along eventually and goes, hey, guys, you've got some things wrong and some things right. This is why he killed him is because he came along and said, your concept of the father, not my father. Right. He's not saying that God's changed. He's saying you need to change your opinion of God. You you have changed over hundreds and hundreds of years and your idea of God has grown. But look at me. I am your I'm where you're going. I'm the ultimate picture. Um, I use the example of, um, I don't know if you ever do like jigsaw puzzles. I loved jigsaw puzzles as a kid. I don't really do them anymore, but you know, with jigsaw puzzles, you, you kind of put the edges around and then you kind of sort them out into colors and you put them down. But if I was to say, to give you a piece of a jigsaw and said, there you go, draw me the jigsaw. Let's say it's a nice and simple one, hundred piece, right? And I give you one piece, you draw me what's on, what the picture is. How confident do you think you'd be able to get that picture down? Ah, oh, to be perfect, hundred <laughs> percent. Exactly right. You would you would just take a step back. It would be one of those awkward things where it's like just the worst picture ever compared to. It might even be a beautiful picture, but it's just nothing like right from one puzzle piece. Might you not, just yeah. have no idea what the other ninety nine are, or even where your one piece is. Is it at the edge? Is it in the middle? Is it at the top? Or is it at the bottom? I don't know. If I give everyone listen to this call, you know, you give like a hundred people a puzzle piece, and go, all right, you all have all the pieces. Now talk amongst each other. And then all of you draw the puzzle. Every single person would draw a different picture. It would be much more accurate because you definitely have not just some trees. You'd have some water. You'd have that person. You'd have, you know, you'd have all the components, but they might be in the wrong place. They might be, who knows? The point is the only way to really know is to start piecing them together, but that takes a very long time and you can make some mistakes along the way. The only way you really know is you just pick up the box and you look and you go, oh, that's the picture I'm building. Okay, I can build that. Oh, that piece was upside down. Oh, that piece is in the wrong area. I need to move that over here. Oh, that's not sky. That's actually a still lake, right? Jesus is the puzzle box. 
Jesus is all the way through scripture. We see God talking to people, then misinterpreting him or people saying things on behalf of God that is not God, which frequently happens in scripture. God calls them out sometimes and other times it doesn't seem he calls them out. Um, and it's happening all the time. Jesus comes along and goes, hi, you've been trying to put all these puzzle pieces together. Let me just show you what it looks like. All right. Now you go. Now suddenly, all the, I'm not throwing anything out of scripture. I'm just saying, oh, that's a that's a human's opinion. So I need to turn that upside down and put it there. Oh, that's something that God's correcting later. I need to move that over here. Oh, I thought that that was you know God speaking. That's a person speaking. Oh, I thought it was a person speaking. Oh, actually, God was speaking through that person. That was divine. And but so we're how moving you... according to Christ. How, like how how does that work? practically for you when it comes to looking at these Bible verses or looking at interpreting how Jesus did certain things? Because I suppose the the catch is, is that everybody is apparently looking at Jesus. Apparently you've got the evangelical movement looking at Jesus and going, Donald Trump is my Jesus man. I'm going to vote for him because he's God's, he's Jesus' anointed. Like how how does this... The problem is they're not using Jesus to subject the rest of scripture in its place. They They are reading the scripture as a flat piece. When they read those red texts, those red texts are just as valuable as a text that says, go and conquer your enemy. So the love your enemy okay, is just. What are you saying? Well, I'm saying no. Jesus comes along, and goes, "Hey, love your enemy." Let me give you an example. So in in the ancient culture, when the laws of Moses come around, they're actually a copy of the original laws. There's a, a, a law called the Code of Hammurabi, who was um, a, a leader in, in Mesopotamia, and he established some laws to kind of help run things. And so Moses's laws are basically pretty much a copy. They're all very similar, but. What's interesting is not that we could go, oh, well, then God doesn't exist. No, 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 no. Let's actually like approach this like adults rather than like toddlers that can only see black and whites, you know, like let's, let's approach this with nuance. So what are the differences? That's the real question, right? If someone gives you something that's very similar, but has differences, it's like a good movie, right? When they give you the same story and you're like, oh yeah, boy meets girl and this is going to happen and then they're going to fall out and then they get back together. Oh, I know this story. And then at the end, someone shoots the mother in the face. You're like, holy shit, where did that come from, right? That's the point of the movie. Not any of the rest of the stuff, right? And so when you look at the laws that God gives Moses, you go, what's going on here? So let's look at... um, a good example might be an eye for an eye, not a Christian or Jewish principle. Code of Hammurabi came up with an eye for an eye. This is how it reads, though. So you go read this in the in the Codex, and it says, if someone causes you to lose your eye, if they are richer than you, they must pay you for your eye. If they are on the same social status as you, you can take their eye. If they are poorer than you, you can stone them to death. Now, then God's law comes along and says, hey, guys, I've got a law for you, an eye for an eye, period. What's it saying? It's not even about eyes, right? First of all, how many people are losing eyes in this culture? Like, what are they doing? Running around with knives and spoons and just gouging eyes out, left, right, out? this is crazy. Of course, it's not about eyes. God's law isn't even about that. It's about equality. The difference, when we look at it on its own, you're like, oh, this is kind of a weird barbaric law where God's saying, oh, if someone causes you to lose an eye, gouge their eye out. Yes, that's actually the end point of that story, unfortunately, is yes, we're still gouging eyes out. But it's saying, hey, maybe we don't stone people that are less than us. Maybe we don't just pay people off if we hurt them. But then what's interesting is it's not the end of the story. If we keep reading, Jesus comes along and goes, hey, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Now, what's funny is you've heard it said. Well, apparently God said that, Jesus. 
You know, <laughs> like yeah. you're kind of critiquing the big guy here. And he goes, I'm telling you there's something better. He says, how about we stop gouging eyes out and we turn the other cheek? We offer grace, we so offer forgiveness. So you're, as I pull apart the, uh, how you unpack and look at the Bible and read the Bible, you're talking about there are things written in the Bible and some Christians might look at it and go, look, see right there, that's what it says. Sure. And what you're doing is saying, okay, yes, it says that, but in what context does it say it? What is it not saying? So the eye for an eye example is saying, no one is better than you anymore. Let's go equal. Like it's not about rich, poor, and you can kill a guy. Let's just level up a little. And and so you're looking at what's not being said, what Jesus might have changed, what the context was, and maybe like what the outcome is. So if someone shows... So I, I suppose the text, and I guess this is what it comes back to, we've been talking about the whole time. When you look at the Bible, you are, you're saying this is the conversation. And there's lots of different things to be added to that sure. conversation from historians, from theologians, from philosophers, from other, other religious traditions and all of those things. And that for you sure. is looking at the different people with different pieces of the puzzle as you engage with this text called the Bible. Does that sound sure. about right? Yeah, I, I'm kind of laughing a little bit to myself because this person that comes to you, this hypothetical person saying, you need to take the Bible seriously. I'm like, oh, okay. So, well, so far I've learned Greek. I've dabbled in Aramaic and Hebrew. I've learned ancient cultures. I've studied history extensively. I've read the Coda Harambe. Um, So I'm assuming you've done all that, obviously, because that's like not enough. What, what, what next is required? Right. And the joke is, of course, that the person that says you need to take the Bible seriously, I guarantee has done bugger all. They've done none of those things. Not one of them. Um, they, they just pick up the Bible and read it. And maybe the concordant, the little commentary at the bottom going, this means that homosexuality is wrong. Or this means don't sleep with your girlfriend or whatever the commentary says. Right. That's what they mean about taking your Bible seriously. It's just don't think about anything beyond what you thought when you first read that passage, which largely is just what your pastor or the people in your church think and told you how to read it. Um, and so it's this thing of like, take it seriously if, if, if you're going to use it. Now, to me, I'm not that fussed. I'm not bound by the Bible. Like, that's not how I operate. Um, it's, it's not important to me. It's important to a lot of people that work with me, people that are very, very tethered still to um, conventional Christianity are exploring it, trying to move on. A lot of progressive Christians are in this place where they're still wanting to try and engage with the Bible and, and uphold it. Um, some choose to just throw it out which is where a lot of the criticism comes from. They just go, oh, I'm not interested in the Bible. Other people go, okay, how can I engage? And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm saying, well, here's how you can. And this is how most of the churches engage with it historically. Um, it's actually a very modern idea. The idea of an infallible, inerrant Bible is a very modern idea. Um, and so this is, again, why I say conventional and not traditional. Traditional is another label given to the church, which is really bad. Don't use traditional because basically all the kind of forms of Christianity that we see today are very modern. They're, they're very modern. They're, they're to say traditional is kind of laughable. Um, it's just not and true. modern. You mean like a hundred years or 200 years or something that would be modern. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like a drop in the, the ocean, a drop in the ocean. Absolutely. So then how can you, how can you, I suppose to pick up on what you said being like, you're not bound by the Bible. Like, would you say then you identify as a Christian? And then if so, how could you, people would say, how could you say, that, how could you identify as a Christian and then say, yeah, in the Bible, like, eh, it, it's take it or leave it. Well, I mean, I'll answer the question, but put it to the side for a second. 
you could ask that question to anyone in the first century. And they'd be like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? What's, what's the Bible? Right. And, and you wouldn't say any of those people are not Christian. Right. So this is the problem. Like it, it's such a laughable, but, but it's modern. It is modern because in the modern church, Christianity is reading the Bible seriously. And, and, and but it's a modern idea. The Bible only has been put in people's hand for the last 400 years and really only been easily read by most people that have access to it or even accessed, accessible to most people in maybe the last 150, 100 years, realistically. Even then, the vast majority of the world has been illiterate and unable to read up until the last century. You know, it's, it's, we, we, we think the Bible is God. Are you kidding me? Like we think the Bible is what saves us. We are screwed if that's the case, because all of history didn't have it. And, and if they did have it, they couldn't read it. Um, or if they did have it, it was in a different language. You know, there's, there's so many like points at which the Bible was not on the cards for people. And are we calling them all non-Christian? Are we calling them all unsaved? Um, so just that's a, a slight point about like people that think like that. So black and white, it's like, are you writing off? Are you saying everyone in the Chinese underground church isn't saved because they don't know the Bible or read it or take it seriously? No, most, most of them, if they're lucky, have a page of it. <laughs> but then what about you then? Because you have, you have sure. the Bible now. Exactly. And, and so I, I suppose yeah. what, what makes you both identify as Christian but then not value so, the Bible. I suppose paint your. Let me, throw, let me throw off an assumption. You've mentioned it many times, and I've chose not to touch it because it's not important. Yeah. But I don't identify. Yeah. As Christian. I don't identify as anything. Uh-huh. And so for oh, me, when tell people, me more. when people, if people label themselves, it's it's a very um, it's very unhelpful practice in my opinion because labels are not for my benefit. Yeah, maybe it is a little, if I'm in a secret quiet room and I go, oh, I'm a Christian and it makes me feel better. Awesome. Great. But generally speaking, let's even put that on the table. What does Christian mean? If I say I'm a Christian, um, my atheist friend goes, ah, one of those Westboro Baptist knobends, right? <laughs> um, knobend translates to many cultures, but it's a good British. I think maybe Aussies might go. <laughs> I like that one. But, uh, knobend. You know, we say knob, but not knobend. Yeah. You're very specific oh, you about which part of the knob, specific but I respect which that. part. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this guy's not just a knob. He's right on the end. He's the end bit. Yeah. If you're going to accidentally touch a part, you don't want to go there. You know? <laughs> um so the americans are just like what's happening um <laughs> the point being um I think you he know, means he's a dick some people hear christian and they hear westboro baptist other people hear christian and they think saint francis of assisi that's a very different assumption so when i say hi everyone i'm a christian i've immediately ruled out that mm. anybody is going to be able to know who i am because they've already now put me in a box of what Christian means to them. To me, I don't really care if you call me a Christian. Like, what, does that make a difference? Right? I mean, what? Like, right. oh no, Conrad called me a Christian. Not a problem. doesn't make a difference to me. Conrad doesn't think I'm a Christian. I'm telling all my friends. doesn't change me. Right? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't make a difference to me at all what people call me. And, and maybe to being online and being an online kind of... Um, personality on the yeah. on the in the world of theology has kind of killed that for me over the last 10 years i just don't care what yeah. people say because people have said some really screwed up stuff but so for me what this is what the deal is with labels labels are utterly useless in the hands of people that know you because they know you they don't yeah. need to put you in a box they know you and they are and it's deeply a, it's a destructive to in the hands of those that don't categorize 
Right. Exactly. Yes. Because because so, it, it immediately draws boundaries for people to actually be able to get to know. So what I always say is, listen to what I'm saying. Do I sound like a Christian? Then label me a Christian. If I don't sound like a Christian, eh, label me as something else. I don't really care. Um, uh, it might rule off, you know, if you- The label is an opinion. Absolutely. And people that are going to do that, they're not going to listen to me anyway. Are you kidding? Like people that are obsessed with me yeah. being a Christian- um, and ticking all the boxes for what they think a Christian means, I've probably failed that about an hour ago, right? <laughs> so, so it's not a big okay. <laughs> and something, something I think some listeners might find interesting as we do practically move beyond the either or labels that we're talking about uh, about here. Talk to me about your practical spirituality then, as mm. as defined by. The being more than some of the parts, the connecting with the thing that is bigger and beyond description and, and that kind of thing. Is If we describe that as spirituality, talk to me about, like, do you go to church? Do you read the Bible? Like, what what would you do personally if we move, if we stop the labels and go, well, just talk to me about what that looks like for you? Sure. I mean, for me, like, I've definitely evolved in a, in a whole host of ways and I've gone through different seasons of doing different things. I think, again, we need to let go of... Um, set practices that work in all seasons right maybe your mom just died maybe the last thing you want to do is sit and read the bible or maybe that's the first thing you want to do but you couldn't mm -hmm. face the bible while she was dying or whatever you know like the, the things happen in life that change what works for us maybe right now what i really need is to go for a walk in the woods and so for me right now what works is i have a thriving community of amazing people um we are all quite deeply spiritual even the atheists in the group um and we we love getting together and we love hanging out we go climbing we go for walks we go to the pub we get together and talk about books that we're reading we do a book club we talk about spirituality we get together and we have a different person each week present some sort of idea of spirituality they've been thinking about and we talk about it and critique it and question it and um do that i love to meditate i love to do breathing exercises i love to go for contemplative walks and or just sit in the garden um there are um, a whole host of different things that, that um, you can do yoga or whatever, I guess, or take psychedelics if you want, like whatever you want uh, that's part of your practice is okay by me. Um, and for me, I'm very broad in what I do. I spend hours and hours and hours a day reading, exploring and, and, and questioning. And so to me, um, I'm not too worried about my spirituality, but I understand if, if reading the Bible for five minutes at the beginning of every day is a point to worry about someone's spirituality, then maybe people need to worry about me. <laughs> um, so, so if we go all the way back to the beginning where you're talking about your journey in traditional or conventional churches through to a still kind of a legalistic Bethel, like literal Bethel church, what didn't work for you in those settings that led you, I suppose, to deconstruct and then move into the space where you help others unpack the, the boxes and labels that they got from religion growing up? Sure. I think there's two components and these are the two main components. I mean, I've, I work with thousands and thousands of people that go through deconstruction and pass them in and out, you know, over the, over the years. Um, and it's the same two categories as well. It's categories of, wow, that's a really messed up view of God if you actually stop and think about it. That, that didn't work for me. So sitting going, wait, so this God who creates everything, creates it so that it all goes to shit, but the only way to sort it is to kill himself or just kill everyone else. And by the way, he can't actually be around someone that's done something wrong. He's going to require everyone to do that and forgive everyone freely, but he himself can't forgive anyone without punishing people. 
And even then, there's the people and that you're talking about Jesus dying for your sins at the moment. All sorts that's of what, different components, right? Talking about, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. that's one penal substitution. But yeah, like I mean, like there's yeah. all kinds of different components. But like even a God that's like, oh yeah, so I say you need to forgive seventy-seven times seven, you know, infinite amount of times. But actually, if you've done one thing wrong and you didn't say a prayer, which is most conventional christians would probably um believe in fact you don't even need to do the one thing wrong just existing you're wrong um for a lot of conventional christians you then burn for eternity we're not talking a trillion years we're not talking 10 trillion years we're talking forever and ever and ever you will continue to burn and god will go nope not enough he still needs to burn a little longer you know like that so like there's all kinds of things so there's the theological components of like god doesn't look anything like jesus if we stop and think about it. can i imagine jesus in hell going all right he's had four billion years keep him going you know, and loving it and being delighting in it because it's like that is who is he is. He's holy. He's just, you know, these concepts of holiness and justice are so warped. But I, I'm kind of projecting some of those concepts. I'm yeah. like, this isn't adding up for and me. They so didn't, I didn't start to explore why didn't, Like, why didn't they work for you? Like, you they don't, they don't look like, like Jesus. They, did they lead you? Like, did they intellectually not work for you? Did they lead you? Did they like help you? And what in what ways didn't they help? I think did you know sev- several different ways, I guess. But for for the most part, it's intellectual. It's, it's we sit down and and you know you have a kid and you go okay. So at what point do I go? Yeah, but it's right. At what point do you go? Ah, yeah, no, it's right. We should burn that kid for eternity. <laughs> there's no there's no scenario. It doesn't matter what they do, right? It just doesn't matter. They could kill you, and you'd still be like nah let them in like you know what i mean like it's maybe not it depends on how flawed we are or how flawed they are or the world um existence but um there's lots of components to that but there's also so i mean i think that's a big part of it is these intellectual kind of complex kind of you know tearing apart and going this doesn't seem to add up i often give the example um you know imagine so we believe that god is the judge that one day will will sit before the throne and he'll go all right well let's look at what you did and he looks through all your punishment and goes all right uh, all your all your bad things and he goes all right well well okay you did really good actually but you didn't say this prayer so you're gonna burn forever send him away right if we take god out of the equation and put god as in the father and we put jesus the son who is the same person 100 through we have to believe as as good trinitarian christians the same being is he still going, well, you didn't, you know, this is the Jesus. Every example we have of Jesus is going, ah, this person's terrible. All right, come on in. You know, like he's always welcoming in these sinners, these, these um, reprobates, whatever the example was that the Jews could come up with, right? A tax collector, a prostitute, a adulterer or whatever. He's like, come on in, you're in, you're in, you're in. Even the Pharisees were in if they could like let go of their legalism, right? Nicodemus is coming in and whatever, like we, Jesus is always bringing in. And yet as soon as we take that off the table and, and we go, all right, let's, let's picture God on a throne up in heaven. Boom. We're in big trouble. And, and it, it splits apart God and Jesus. This is why I don't like penal substitution. You've got God on one side, punishing himself, Jesus, who's the loving kind one. And the other one is a really just and holy one. Or like it, it's splitting apart the act. Like it, it just doesn't work. You're not supposed to, um, engage with the concept of God like this if you're being honest. And so I was being honest. I was like, I, I can't have a God that's at odds with himself. Now, I will say the other component, which is a really big component, 
is, and, and this is a huge part that mostly leads people to the progressive church because they're not questioning those concepts of God as much. They're questioning how their faith works out because they're so tied to the Bible. They have to hate gay people. They have to hate transphobic. Now they know that I'm not hating them. I'm really loving them, but they're starting to see that's not actually true. Uh, this is actually really hateful. I know I can say that I love them, but the Bible right. says. So they start when to you have say, these I just hate the sin, but I love the sinner. Yeah, you're they, saying. They start saying, to go, oh. uh, it doesn't feel good because I actually had a friend that was gay and like I've seen how much that hurt them. Or maybe my kid came out and I'm like seeing how much that's been a problem. And so you start to go, yeah. this isn't adding up. I can see how how complicit in uh, racism, col colonialism, like all these kind of like isms that, that the church falls um, prey to. Um, and, and, you know, the system that is the church is so intricately linked with, um, a lot of people start waking up to that. And that was a big part for me as well. Just realizing, gosh, this whole system is a bit messed up and it's been co-opted. Um, this is not what I think Christianity should look like. Um, and, and does it, if we go back through history, has it always looked like that? Not up until really Rome take control. It was very nonviolent. It was very anti, um, you know, uh, colonialism it was very inclusive it was it was very anti a lot of things anti-empire anti-violence you know whatever um and suddenly when empire takes over huh there's good guys there's bad guys it can be violent god becomes violent again like all these things kind of re-emerge and so i think it's really okay for us to question these things and that's what generally speaking the progressive church are they're maybe questioning some of the theological components and they tend to eventually go into that world. But generally speaking, they come from groups of people that are questioning the, the out, the practice of Christianity, but aren't questioning the, the theology, the, the, you know, the, the, the deity of it. So they want to keep that structure. They want a church. They want a God and they're not going to run away to atheism. A lot of, a lot of people at deconstruct do go through some atheism or like certainly a, a, most people go through seasons of agnosticism. Now, if we're honest, all Christians go through seasons, seasons of agnosticism. Heck, half of your day, you're probably an agnostic if you're honest. You're not thinking about God. You don't believe, you're not living like you believe there's a God and that your neighbor's going to burn in hell if he doesn't say a prayer. Because if you were mm. truly fully believing that every second of every day, you'd be outside your neighbor's door every second of every day going, God, dude, Steve, please listen, hear me out. Like, just say the prayer. I'll give you some sleep, you know? Um, so there's like, this operating theology that you're talking about is that we we've turned this idealism of a, of a theology being like god is like this and i'm a believer and that's my identity and i'm a christian and this is my picture of god and that's my that's my we extend that intellectual idea and that story to saying i am a christian but then you're saying but there is a pragmatic reality of us living day to day that is Oh, like, I don't know. Like maybe I'm, maybe it's late at night and it's dark and I'm a bit scared. And I'm like, frig, I don't like, is there a God? I don't know. And right. then in that moment I'm agnostic, but I might, I might, um, supersede that with a new thought that just says, oh no, but I'm a Christian and there is a God. And I have this like story that I'm, I suppose, forcing on top of a reality sure. rather than maybe accepting the, you, the picture of a human that you're painting as I hear you talk is this is this ever-changing, ever-moving, um, always, I suppose, the seasons of life going through it, going, there's a season where you need the structure, then there's a season where you need to pull it apart, and then there's a season where reading the Bible in this way will help, and then there's a season where tearing it all down and not reading it, and you're kind of bringing, because Christianity seems to build up, and I suppose a lot of, like, 
fundamentalism builds up these ideas of static structures and and, and it happens in politics it happens in everything it, it's sure. saying i mean the, to bring it to a pol- political level just to illustrate the example that it's not just in religion it's you listen to the americans talk and it's really the americans really about this where it's you talk about socialism v capitalism it's like you're either one or the other buddy but it's like well hang on like i'm in australia you're you're in england like we have socialized medicine socialized firefighters socialized police force socialized yep. uh, welfare but we have privatized like di- various different other things and sure. there really is no camp here you know it's like it's a bit of a mix you know and it's the same in america though in america they have most of those things and they certainly have socialism That's for the rich right. <laughs> so and you're um, and you're almost if we were to take that idea of ever-changing things there might be um i use this example sometimes when i'm talking to people about like if we take this religious fundamentalist structure onto politics and say, no, no, like in Australia, we've got two, like main two parties, liberal labor. Like, now nah, I'm always a liberal voter. That's who I always vote for. Sure. And, and, but it might be more helpful to think of it in the framework going, listen, I think society's probably privatized too much and there's too much corporate influence in our politics. I'd like to swing us a little bit left, but let's say for some reason that the Greens party got all they wanted and they made everything public and there was no innovation in private enterprise. I'm like, oh, give me some capitalists again. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's this, if, if we as a society and we as humans are always changing, you're kind of saying there are different things and aspects and i guess ideas or theology or or religious structures or practices that might help us as we grow and change through through life i suppose sure this is another example of dualism in the sense that you've got like you can be a capitalist or a socialist right one or the other or even the idea that these two suddenly appeared so one day capitalism was invented and everything was capitalist and then and then if you're not that you're somehow a but the truth is capitalism evolved slowly and surely people moved into those concepts and structures and they added new ideas and then there was big catalytic moments in its evolution where a new idea free markets boom that really boomed it and it moved further forward but it's constantly evolving and it's constantly evolving in a direction and capitalism has been really helpful for society but actually if you look at the direction it is moving we look at it and we go this might not be helpful for us later now oh so you're saying i have to be over here in socialism no no you're a socialist mate socialism you're a socialist has evolved and it's been in times it's been very helpful and other times it's not so helpful not so not other times, doesn't work yeah. so much and um, and guess what there's about a billion other options out there and guess what there's new ideas that will come and 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 it's the thing of like can we let go of the fact that yeah there's two ideas that are on the table that like people like to think are independent they're intricately interwoven we're all in very capitalistic socialist countries unless you're in like maybe like china or something we're all very capitalistic and we're all very socialist as well we, we all have these principles applied in many different ways um but the the point is can we just look forward to a new idea so a new idea gets presented and says hey I noticed there's some homeless people and they're dying because it's really cold. And I wonder, like, is there a way we could, like, I don't know, just see if we can give them jackets or maybe get them into a care or maybe... It sounds like socialism to me, mate. Socialism. Okay, no, no, no. So socialists would do that, yeah. But what if capitalists came up with a way on how they would do that? What if socialists and capitalists got together and talked about how could we fix homelessness without fearing it being labeled socialist or capitalist and instead going what if this was just labeled oh that's a fucking good idea look at that they they save people they they heal people as they they, that what if that was what if we were worried about being labeled nice people that solved a problem rather than being labeled socialist or capitalist because the truth is we might come up with some really good ideas and maybe it would be called 
Nicilism. I don't know. Call it something else. Just so long as it doesn't get labeled one of these two, because we social the, the the left can't possibly be identified with capitalism, and the right can't possibly, you know, again, dualisms, right, left. Um, but it's this thing of like, if you look at what it takes to run a country, you're talking billions of little policies. Politics just means the, the policies that run a country. Um, you know, what comes from the the, the root word is uh, just to mean city, but. Um, it's it's all these individual poli- po- policies, and it might be that oh, uh, water comes from this place and it goes through to that place, and oh, and then how are we going to get rid of water once they pooped in it? Oh, well, we need to do that and this, and there's probably about three hundred policies in place just for you to drink water and then get to poop in it and make sure it doesn't hang around. You know, that's a whole bunch of policies. Now, here's the deal: Do you think that the right and the left, the liberals and the labor and the conservatives and labor, or the to- the, the 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 Democrats and Republicans, do you think most of them probably roughly agree that it'd be good to make sure people can drink water and it'd be really great if they didn't have to sit in their own filth? Yes. So, so far, when we work through the policies, if we start under water sanitation, we're mostly together on this. Now, there will be some divide on like, well, who provides it? Well, the government should provide it. Oh, the the private enterpriser. You know, there's going to be differences. But the point is, we can recognize that out of these billions of policies, we actually agree on the vast majority. And then we go, all right, so actually, what are we really worrying about? And this is the same with Christianity. If you look through the history of Christianity, what we've been doing is we've been learning to love ourselves, to connect to the divine, to love our neighbor, to try and love our enemy, to try and live a more holistic, healthy life full of love and inclusion and acceptance. And we've been tethered by different components. So some people have been held back by, oh, I've got to got to make sure I do this one thing though. And, oh, that means I can't love that person as well, but it's, it's that, it must be love anyway. So we'll do it. But there's different things that have held us back or pushed us forwards. You know, think of slavery, slavery, people use the Bible to abolish slavery, but guess what? On the other side of the aisle, people were using the Bible to support slavery. And so, you know, people have been pushed and pulled and feared and, and, and inspired by the same things the whole way. Um, and so it's, it's recognizing that we're all in this together that breaking things into either ors and us and thems does not help. Like if, if you're a Christian and you're hearing me going, oh, this is a, this is a non-Christian, so I can't listen to him. This is evil. I can't listen. You're just, you're, you're holding yourself back from learning. Like it says that Jesus get, says, I'm going to you there's loads of stuff I've taught that it's not enough. There's much more I want you to learn, but you're just not ready. Right. I don't know whether they weren't evolved enough or enlightened enough, because I'd imagine if he overthrew slavery or said, hey, let's stop treating women like property and have them completely equal. And he did a lot for that anyway. Um, it wouldn't it wouldn't have gone down even worse than like what he was proposing didn't go down. Right. I mean, they killed him. <laughs> um, but like, you know, they weren't ready to get rid of slavery because and we know this because the whole of humanity hasn't got rid of slavery yet. And it only the most enlightened parts of society have only got rid of slavery in the last few hundred years. You know what I mean? Like we were not ready at that point. And so Jesus is like, you're not ready for so many things I want to teach you, but I'm sending you a helper, the Bible. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, I'm sending you a helper, the spirit of God. My spirit is going to live in you and it's going to keep moving you forward. It's going to keep teaching you truth. And we, we, we fear that some enemy, some devil, I know you just had Zan talking about Satan, right? But like, we fear that Satan's going to deceive us and, um, and and he's so powerful, we're going to be tricked and deceived and go off the, the slippery slope. We fear that more than we trust. Again, this is weird components of God being smaller than sin because he's you know scared of it or whatever. God is somehow smaller than the devil. He's less able to, with his spirit in us, he's less able to keep us in truth, which is the one job that he said the spirit's going to be doing is guiding us in truth. God's less able to do that 
then Satan is able to, you know, confuse us or deceive us. And I think people need to let go of these concepts and trust a little bit, relax and go, gosh, I've got God living in me. The divine lives in me. And we're all moving in this beautiful direction of learning more and exploring what it is to be human in this world and connected to God. Yeah. Sorry. As, rant. No, 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 no. You're right. As, as we kind of wrap up, because, you know, I got to keep these things under two yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. So I can go Sorry. for a long My time. My podcasts are like three <laughs> no, hours no, no. the time, so I'm used to talking. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's fine. Um, at, like, if you were to... The thing that interests me most, and this is what I always try and find if people can identify it, is what is what is the idea that I suppose, even for you, that you found that enabled or allowed you to see some form of non-dualism. You're describing this non-dual type of way that says, when we stop labeling and judging, we're actually open to the infinite possibilities that's more than just the two possibilities that we've chosen between. What is it, at least for you, that allowed you to first engage with or understand? Like, what was the gateway drug idea that got that got you to the point where you went, you know what? Maybe I don't need to judge this. Maybe I'm going to just sit with it. Or what stops people from doing that? It's it's funny. Um, so I think generally speaking, if you look at um, human psychological development, when, when people study that, they will tell you that non-dualism is a very, very rare thing that people step into. So generally speaking, it's rare. I'm not non-dual. I still have plenty of dualistic components, but I, I'm hopefully tiptoeing in. Um, it's funny. Yeah, the I reason your, I laughed your is, uh, knob end gave that away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I, you, you can find out who my us and thems are very quickly, probably generally. Um, I, I'm, I'm letting go. Um, but yeah, it, this might be a real stretch for your audience. But for me, the thing that opened me up to non-dualism, my great gateway drug was drugs. I took a whole bunch of mushrooms and I was like, holy shit. Yeah, we're a lot more together than we thought. And actually, what the hell is even a fill? And what is consciousness? And what is the ego? And it just really unraveled me. And, and I was like, gosh, I'm going to have to really redraw. So drugs led exploring. you to accept yeah. and love other people. Now, that's yeah. the clickbait. Drugs led you to love. <laughs> they don't teach that in high school, right? Watch out, kids. Drugs no. might make you love people and accept them more and be a little bit less dualistic in life. <laughs> no, I am not saying psychedelics <laughs> psychedelics very very um very careful and intentional and very um approached very spiritually as opposed to recreationally on any level um i'm a big baby i'm scared of drugs and i'm scared of um, alcohol i was very scared to do that um but i was too drawn by the stories of people that have uh, approached this spiritually through that mechanism and, and seen incredible growth and so for me i was like yeah i'm, go I'm gonna go for it and so um, that was a big thing for me. It wasn't the only thing. I had plenty of study, plenty of research, plenty of reading, yeah. um, plenty of meditation. Meditation is huge. Contemplation, just contemplate. Sorry. Who am I and what are these dualistic things? That, just sitting there in silence, sit in the room, get rid of your phone and just sit and contemplate. What is a Republican? What is a Democrat? Who is that person? What do they believe? Do they believe everything? Do they believe things that are similar to me? What do they believe different? It just it's exploring and contemplating these things. You start to go, Ah, most of the things I think when I hear that label are probably bullshit. You know? So what did what did the the like the psychedelic trip 
connect, like can open to you? What what idea did you suddenly like connect connect with? Yeah, yeah. I just saw my wife just jumped on the Instagram. Um, so uh, for me, I think. I mean, there's a lot. And when you talk about stuff like this, it's very hard to talk about because it is, um, it's really hard to talk about these things because it does disconnect you from your ego, from yourself. Um, and so I think that's the biggest part is that it, it, it kind of almost is like lifting out of the room and observing yourself. It's observing and going, huh, that's me well who's me and and this is part of the meditation process right is you you have a thought and you go i thought that wait i thought that well what who's looking at that thought going really is that my thought is that me you know when you start to observe you start to realize there's an observer um and so it starts to disconnect you a little bit and give you a bit more breathing room and a bit more room to observe rather than judge um and i think that's a huge huge thing that um for me that really sparked that process for me it really uh, it was something I was really intentionally working on, but I'd heard that having that very physical experience really helps you grow in that area very quickly. Because um, for me, I didn't really ever understand what people were talking about when they were talking about consciousness, what it is to be conscious. And I was like, yeah, I kind of get that and understand that. And then suddenly I was like, oh, whoa, I understand what people are talking about when they're talking about that I am not my thoughts. I am not me like but you can't you can't describe that and 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 let me say very clearly i'm not suggesting that people necessarily do that um if if that's your path and you want to do that phil wants you to take drugs that's the click but uh yeah that's the clickbait this is some good clickbait for you in this um but you know if you are going to do it do it responsibly do it intentionally do it spiritually don't do it in a loud crazy room where everyone's partying or something do you know what i mean like this is it's a very i think with anything you do it with intentionality and spirituality it's the same with meditation. You meditate in a really busy room. You're probably going to spend a lot less time controlling your thoughts and you know trying to you know do what you want to do. That can actually be a really good meditation practice as well. Go into a mall and try and be here now. Observe your thoughts. But yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting one. But it's very hard for me to begin to explain what that looks like. Um, a, a really a helpful teacher for me on the way, and I've not mentioned nearly enough people because none of my thoughts are unique. Um, but a really helpful person on the journey for me has been someone called Ram Das, who, who unfortunately died earlier um, this year. But um, an amazing teacher. He was um, he was um, a, a, a psychology uh, professor at Harvard, and they came across uh, this comp- this uh, thing called psilocybin, um, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms and LSD and different things like that. And they they were like, "Whoa, this is crazy stuff!" And it really is pretty profound it's got some potentially huge implications but they also sampled their product that they were doing studies on because they were like this is really profound and it's and and his journey is very much like whoa what is this and what am i and what is the reason for life and and i think he grew up jewish and so like he's you know having all these different experiences but there's more to this and what's going on it very much i've never met anyone that's taken psychedelics that isn't um at the very least agnostic i've never met an atheist that stayed an atheist after taking psychedelics (laughs) i'm sure they're out there but it's rare um it it definitely opens and goes whoa this is crazy um, and so for him, he's he was suddenly realized, gosh, I'm taking a lot of this stuff because I keep coming down. You come off of that trip and you start to go ah, back to normal. So he then went to the East and he started exploring Hinduism and Buddhism and trying to meet with gurus. And he kept giving all these gurus LSD going, what's happening? Is it, is it changing things for you? What is that? How can I get that normally? Um, and he went on his own journey of trying to learn to actually live that without the the the, the help of drugs. Right. So it's the same as a drug might get you off your pain, but hopefully you get to the point where you can manage that pain without the drug. 
Um, it's the same thing that psychedelics for him, and it, and it worked for me in the ten, in the sense that when I took it, I was like, whoa, this really took me out of the the struggle I was having of trying to conceptualize this and explore this, and I'm really exploring it in a way that probably ten years of meditation probably would have struggled to get me where I was going. Not very good at meditating, um, but I'm much better at meditating now. Right. And so it's that thing of like, oh, whoa, I come back and I'm like, I can meditate yeah. in ways I never meditated before. It's very so interesting. So your, your gateway drug was drugs. Excellent. Drug. I like that. It's less, uh, it's less, it's becoming less legal. much more, less... Uh, less illegal. It's becoming more and more legal, which is quite exciting. Um, yes. Yes. Very good, positive uses. Very, lots of stuff for depression, pain um and things like that really and more research going into it as well as, yeah. which is which is what we're watching phil i could keep talking to you for a long time <laughs> and we'll probably have to we'll probably have to catch up again um whether you you're listening to this and if you've made it to like the end talking about psychedelics and things like that that's hopefully got to push some buttons whether you whether you agree or disagree Listen, I don't, it's not the point. It doesn't matter. I don't really care if you agree or disagree. Hopefully, you've been able to understand a little bit about how Phil, I suppose, read the Bible, how he identifies with labels, and I guess uh, towards the end there, he like his little dabbling in, in drugs, and, and, and maybe you can understand how he sees the world just a little bit more. Um, three things, if you want to take this... Um, podcast from a passive to a practice listen to the thing that triggers you the most ask a question send through a question what did i miss what did i miss asking i wish i had more time could have could have done more and <laughs> respond send a send a response to to my dms and if you I, if you want to reach out to uh, phil phil where can people like reach and connect with you a whole host of ways um so instagram is the best place i'm most active on that so it's just phil drysdale message me i chat with people all day every day on there um, I do weekly Q and A's. I, I post loads of stuff. Um, I've got a website for people that are more inclined towards kind of Christianity called the grace course and explores different approaches to different concepts uh, and kind of lays them out and lets people kind of figure out where they stand. Um, I've got a website called the deconstruction network. If people are deconstructing and they feel alone, that can be a really lonely process. A lot of people lose their friends, family, churches. Um, that's just basically a map of the world. You put yourself on there and you can connect with people in your local area and hopefully start to rebuild some friendships some community around people that are also understand that journey. Probably don't believe exactly the same as you, but they used to, and they're also on a path of discovery. Um, and so that's really helpful for people. Um, and then I do everything I do for free. So if people want to support that, they can um, become a partner or a Patreon. And through that, I've got a private discussion group where we have chats in and out every day. Um, and we do a monthly Zoom call as well. And so there's lots of different ways people can connect with me. But um, yeah, come find me on Instagram. Send me messages. I, I love to chat with people. And so, yeah, it'd be great. Thanks for awesome. Thank, thanks so much for, for taking all the time. Now, if you've, if you've made it to the end of this podcast, you, it's, 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 it's physics. You now have to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Like, it's just the way it works. If you made it this bloody far, take a few extra minutes, mate, and, uh, and, and rate and review. But if you have any, like, guest ideas, topic ideas, send them through to ideasdigest at gmail.com. And thank you, everyone, for joining us live and uh, being a part of the show that way and sending through questions and things like that. I will catch everyone in the next episode. Thanks for listening.